Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, 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 April the 16th, 2021. Time for the Monster Show of the Week with the Expert Council Q&A. Here's what I've got for you today. I've got a wonderful keto weight loss success story from a listener with Dr. Ken Berry. I've got the right type of insurance for a handyman business with Tim the Toolman Cook. I got Nick Ferguson saying compost is bad, sorta, kinda, in a way, and I got a funny story to go along with it when we get to that segment. The bad, the ugly, and the worst of the Ford Power Stroke 6.4 is a tow and towing is a side hustle, kind of combined into one with Derek Bonpietro. Dealing with ear pressure issues, Doc Bones. And then I've got a quote of the day for you, which will be the impetus for my anchor segment today. Change is inevitable, and the disruption it causes often brings both inconvenience and opportunity. I'll tell you who said it and what I'm thinking about it when we get to the final segment of the show today. Before we do that... um, I just wanted to let you know, I am going to be making some structural changes to the show. I don't think it'll be anything big or monumentous or anything like that. I don't think that anybody's going to, you know, uh, there's always a person who has a problem with everything. But I think like 99.999% of the audience won't even really care. Um, but you're going to start seeing that the expert council shows are more like these, this one today. Kind of straight off into it. Um, I don't know that we'll be doing uh, sponsors uh, at all for Expert Council. I haven't been doing that for quite a while. Um, I'm actually going to be paring down some sponsors and keeping the, the best of the best uh, in, in some ways and maybe opening some spots for some others. But I've got some people that have fallen off payments, and I've just let it go. So you're going to see some sponsors go. It's not that they did anything wrong. It's just, you know, I mean, if they're not paying the bill, then you, you got that, right? So. Uh, and they will be notified before it happens to make sure that they don't want to, to, to start paying again. Um, just, there's going to be some changes. And you won't see most of them until I get back from my vacation next month. I'm going to be on vacation. I don't even know the dates exactly, but it's like the first, second week of May. And then I'm going to get back. And, and I just kind of wanted to formally announce today what's going to happen. So there's been six podcasts a day since I started Miyagi Mornings, running the Miyagi Mornings uh, weekend recap. I'm going to start running that one day a week, so there'll still be five podcasts like there were for 13 years. Just one of them will be the Miyagi Mornings Recap, so people can pick and choose between watching the segments and videos or doing the podcast. Basically, I've been doing this now for 13 years, and I don't want to quit ever. But I also want to start reaping more of the rewards, not in money, but in time. And, uh, you know, I've got my grandkids here every day, and it'd be nice a couple times a, a month to take my grandson fishing on, on Friday morning when he gets here, before it gets hot in the summertime, that type of thing. And so I'm going to be doing that, and they're gonna, you're going to see some other changes. I will absolutely listen to anything anybody has to say. I care about this audience deeply, and I don't want to make changes that are uh, detrimental to the audience in any way. But I think that we put out plenty of content. And I, I don't think maybe kind of rearranging things this way is going to hurt anything. And I'll point out that when I started doing the expert counsel show, that was the plan. 
that I thought I would do this expert counsel show and I would just you know drop everything in and just let it be what it was. And I am a person that I can't halfway do anything. So I have to let myself fully do five, five shows a week to stay at a five-show-a-week frequency. I think doing the Miyagi mornings segments and then dropping them into a show, that's something I can keep doing the way I've been doing. And so I'll be able to wrap up Thursday afternoons and check out. You know, I'll still do customer service and stuff, but check out mostly from Thursday afternoon till Monday mornings. And uh, I, I hope that's okay with everybody. I'll just say that, you know, I, I, I don't know that I'm going to care if it's not okay with a couple people, but if it's not okay with a lot of people, I, I, I might have to reevaluate it. So I discussed this deeply with my wife, who is my primary advisor in all things, and um, we kind of came to the conclusion, hey, why don't you try it? Why don't we see how it works? If it doesn't hurt your numbers, if it doesn't cause any really bad feelings with, you know, the audience members that you know and love, uh, if everything keeps running great, then why not do it? And that was uh, one of those cases that she often makes to me where I go, Yeah, you know, I don't really have a response to that, so I made an informed decision. And if you want to check out the Miyagi Mornings podcast uh, recap this week, it will be on Saturday like normal. That'll be that way all the way up till I go away on vacation. And uh, the episode today was about making decisions. So we're going to talk about all, all kinds of cool stuff today. I just wanted to kind of prime the pump for the change that's coming to give people time to adjust to the change. People don't like change. I understand that, and uh, if you know it's coming and it slowly comes in pieces and parts, it's usually easier to accept. All right, with that, let's go ahead and dig on into this. Let's start off with, like, just, it's a Friday. How about something really uplifting? A dude going keto, saving his own life by losing over 100 pounds, that's pretty uplifting. Ken Berry with some thoughts on that. Hey, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry. I have a, this is actually a comment from Matt today, but I wanted to share it and I want it, I want you guys to listen to this because it's very, very important. Matt says that he just passed 100 pound of weight loss two days ago and he's got 25 more to go. He did keto the whole time. He added exercise and intermittent fasting after he had lost the first 45 pounds. That's actually quite common. Many people starting keto are so morbidly obese, so overweight that their body is not ready to exercise. So Matt wisely lost 45 pounds and then he started feeling like it was safe and he was motivated to do some exercise and that's perfect. You can start out just doing keto or you can start out with keto plus daily intermittent fasting. Matt didn't add the fasting till later on, and that, again, that's perfectly uh, acceptable to do that. But what I wanted to really touch on is Matt said, quote, you pushing that calories do, do, don't really count. Change things for me versus previous tries where I was just eating too much. So here's why. If you're counting calories, if you're measuring portion sizes, then what you're doing is you're pushing away from the table before you're completely comfortably full. That is not sustainable. That's called semi-starvation. And when you starve any mammal, including a human, they can only do that for so many meals, for so many days, and then they're going to be so hungry, they're going to eat. And most likely, they're going to eat something that they shouldn't have eaten. And so that's why I don't talk about calories. I do not talk about portion sizes. I want you to eat as much fatty meat as you can, as you want, until you're comfortably stuffed. You're never going to slow down your weight loss by, by doing that. Great job, Matt. I hope you're sharing your journey on social media. 
because that helps so many other people understand these concepts when they see the success that someone like you you has had. Thanks a lot. Well, this is, again, one of those places where I disagree with Ken, but I don't disagree. I disagree and I agree. I think many people can go on a keto diet if they actually do keto, balance the macros, right, so that you make sure you're getting you know, a certain amount from fat, a certain amount from protein, and, and then count the carbs and keep the carbs below you know, 20 carbs a day. And there are people that can do that, and they can eat all the cracklings and stuff that they, they want, and they are not going to have a problem losing weight. There are people like that. It's more than half that will experience that. It's probably significantly more than half. There are as a subgroup of people that will do it. They'll initially lose weight, and they'll plateau, and they'll stick. And I've had those people reach out to me. I feel like I'm doing everything right. Okay, let's look at what you're eating. And they'll be, they'll be shoving 9, 10,000 calories a day into their body. And the people that fit the model Ken just gave you moderated their calories without intention. By going keto, the appetite suppressive effects and the rebalancing of the hormones were sufficient that they just don't eat that much. I understand that because it happened to me. I understand exactly how that works. There are people, and I don't know if it's a genetic predisposition. I don't know if it's how much damage has already been done to their body. I don't know what it is, but that moderation effect does not come. And if you look at how many calories are in one pound of fat, and you need, you're using, let's say, 2,000 calories a day, and you're taking in a surplus of seven, eight, nine thousand calories, your body can only eliminate so much of that without using it and continue to eliminate your excess body fat at the same time. So all the people that are saying you don't have to count calories, they didn't count calories, and they're, they're, their caloric intake self-moderated. And there are people who will not. If you tell them they can eat as much as they want, they will literally sit down and eat half a count a setting. And if you do that and it works, I don't care. Then good. I'm just saying don't ever be in a place where you're trying to do this for yourself and you hit a plateau and you insist that calories don't matter. You also need to look at other things. A lot of times when people tell me, like, I'm doing everything right, And, you know, their, calorie, their, their carbs are not a lot. When I said, what are you eating? And they send me their information. They're eating a lot of the keto treats and shit like that. And when you really look, okay, first of all, you're not keto because your actual net carbs are up in the neighborhood of 35 because you're not really tracking this stuff. So that's one thing that happens. Another thing is it's just so much garbage food, right, or so many things that they think are net carbs but they're not net carbs. Um, that, that's the problem. But it's often the case. I've seen people that are, I mean, they're eating a small amount of vegetables and a lot of meat and fat. And they're not losing the weight anymore. And as soon as you bring the caloric component into control, they start losing weight again. So we disagree on that. And I'll just say Ken promised me studies that would show me how wrong I am about this. Over two years ago, I have no studies still. I'm just saying. Anyway, <laughs> let's go on from there. Um, if you are going to be a handyman, you could end up in a place where you have an accident or a problem. You might need some insurance. So we have a question for Tim, the Toolman Cook, on what kind of insurance should somebody doing the handyman business thing have? 
Hey guys, Toolman Tim here from ToolmanTim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. I'm back again to answer another question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. This week's question comes from Keith. He asks, what sort of insurance coverage would you advise a full-time handyman to have? I'm thinking particularly about public liability insurance, but also about damage that might be blamed on you while providing handyman services on a customer's property. So, before I dig into this question, I need to drop a big disclaimer. I'm not an insurance salesman, broker, or expert. Everything I'm going to share is from my own personal experience and what has worked for me in my handyman business. And before I dig into the full-time handyman thing, any and all of what I say can also apply to side hustlers as well. You just need to know what your own personal risk tolerance is. I personally didn't carry any insurance until a few months after I went full-time, and I would certainly not recommend doing that. But you may want to cover your own butt even when you're just doing it on the side. So, I would also recommend finding an insurance expert that you really trust. My local guy is incredible. I have his personal cell and can call and text him anytime I need to with a question. He always takes the time to explain to me the what and the why of each type, and on a couple of occasions has even said, I'd love to sell you this, Tim, but you can get it much cheaper from place XYZ instead. So find someone you trust and you can lean on their experience. When first starting out, the first insurance that most guys carry is liability. I now carry $2 million worth of liability. When I first started, it was just one, but some commercial places that I quote require $2 million. That amount isn't the important part. The important part is having coverage for something catastrophic. The type of thing that can ruin your business and your livelihood very quickly. Say you're augering out a post hole and you accidentally hit a natural gas line. Or you're mounting a flat screen TV and hit a hidden water line in the wall. You didn't notice it and it floods the entire basement over a weekend. Or something I don't recommend doing, but you hook up an electrical appliance wrong and heaven forbid you cause a fire. Those are the things that you want to have coverage for, at least starting out. Because if you're a sole proprietor, your financial well-being is tied completely with your business and personal financial well-being. You can't separate them. So secondly, and this isn't tr insurance in the traditional sense, but to me it's every bit as important. <clears throat> and that is having a damage fund. It's like an emergency fund, but it covers the small things. I recommend having at least the amount of your deductible for your insurance claims so that it'll cover if you happen to have one. But early on, I found that the things that most often happen are things like moving an item in a house and putting a nick, a scratch, a ding, or a dent into a wall, mowing a lawn and putting a rock through a window, or catching an expensive mat of the homeowners in that same mower and needing to replace it. Just ask me about that. <laughs> Those type of things you want to make sure you have some cash on hand to fix those mistakes so that you don't end up needing to put them through insurance that'll cost you significantly more in premiums down the road. So what other insurances do I keep? Well, over time, it, it seemed to have compounded quite a bit, but I now I have the two I mentioned already, plus commercial vehicle insurance, fire and theft for my tools and gear, workers' compensation coverage, supplemental health insurance, and life insurance. So once you have those first two covered, in my mind, the next most important thing, at least for me, is making sure your work tools and gear are covered. It will surprise you early on how quick you start collecting up gear and how much it's actually worth. Even if you're like me and you start out with what you had on hand and a bunch of scrounged up gear you either found at the landfill or trade it with customers, if you had to replace it all at once, it would be a lot more expensive than you thought. 
a while back, Jack had an insurance expert on the show, and he talked about being underinsured and how you'd only be partially covered. So I called my insurance guy, and he had me make a list of all my assets. I took pictures of them, wrote down and took pictures of all their serial numbers, and it turns out that I was actually underinsured by almost two-thirds. So we upped the coverage. It didn't cost me much extra, but I was able to sleep better knowing that if somebody stole all my stuff, I'd be covered. A few other things that I found in my time as a handyman is make sure you're covered for hauling a trailer. Some policies explicitly don't. And also, as soon as I put my logo on my truck, I found out that I needed to have a higher level of registration on my vehicle. And a local highway cop was nice enough to pull me over and inform me of that. Do your due diligence for insurance coverage, talk to an expert, get the coverage you can comfortably afford based on your personal risk tolerance, and then don't lose any sleep over it. I hope that helps. This is just based on my experience and what has worked for me so far. So that's it for that, guys. I just want to take a minute and thank the community for their support. My YouTube channel just flew past a 1,000 subscribers a couple of weeks ago, and it wouldn't have happened without the TSP community. So thank you. If you want to know more about what I do, take a minute and run by toolmantim.co and see what all I do. And keep an eye out because we have a really cool tool review collaboration video coming out in a few weeks featuring a bunch of content creators from the TSP community. So that's it for now, guys. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Next up, um, Nick Ferguson was at my place quite a few days before the, the last spring workshop, and we were here with some other folks. I think by the time this conversation happened, uh, Nicole was here, uh, and my buddy JR was here, and I, I'm not sure if anybody else was here, but we were sitting out on my back porch around a little fire table, and I wasn't really paying attention to the conversation, but all of a sudden I hear Nick go, I don't make compost anymore, and he kind of just does this thing with his hands where he kind of pushes his hands out to the side, and he's like, compost is bad. Turning compost is bad, and he did the thing with his hands again, and it was funny the way he did it. And what ensued was a discussion about something called a Johnson Sioux bioreactor that makes compost, even though compost is bad, but it does it differently. With some information on that, Nick Ferguson. Hey there, it's Nick Ferguson with another TSP Expert Council answer, and this time we have a question about compost and how to tell if it's done or not. Uh, Darby kicked this one back. He said he thought Nick, Ben, or Jeff would be better equipped for this one, and Jack sent it to me. So the question is, how do you know if compost is ready to use? I'm going to answer that real quick before reading the rest of the question. When it smells like beautiful, rich forest soil. That's when you know. All right. Uh, also, when it looks like fully decomposed, beautiful, rich forest floor soil. All right. We got a truck bed load of compost from a local water treatment plant. It looks like dirt but stinks. I've never made my own compost, so I'm not sure what to do. Can I use this in a 50-50 split with topsoil? I've not been able to build soil yet, so I've mainly been buying topsoil to mix with potting soil for plants and trees that we are planting. We live in south New Mexico, and our soil is mainly sand. Oof, Jesse, I feel you. I have mainly sand where I live in Louisiana, but I bet it's not as bad as south New Mexico. Uh, all I can do is tell you what I do. And I got to tell you, if I got a load of municipal compost 
that stank, I'd have one place to put it, which is back where I got it. If you don't want to take it back, then I'd put it somewhere out of the way to sit for at least a year. Alternatively, and preferably, you could mix it with other materials in a shady area and use that to fill a Johnson Sioux bioreactor. Uh, really, I shudder to think what all is in municipal wastewater treatment compost. I mean, municipal compost is bad enough, but wastewater treatment compost, I literally... When I read this, I literally shuddered. Um, I'd only use it after going through a fungal year-long process like in a bioreactor. And even then, I'd only used it on landscape trees and forestry applications or as a broadacre inoculant. If it's contaminated with heavy metals or pharmaceuticals, which I can almost guarantee it is, then at least the fungal act- activity should nullify some of the harmful effects and then spreading it broad acre will also help disperse the effects to hopefully a negligible net negative for alliteration's sake. I don't want to scare you off using the stuff completely, but honestly, I'd never use stinky wastewater treatment compost to grow potatoes for my kids. Compost should smell like forest floor soil after a rain. It should smell beautiful. It should have beautiful crumbly texture if you squish it hard in your fist it should hold together almost like clay and if you smear it in between your your forefingers it should smear like clay there shouldn't be clumps of material like bark and wood chips and leaves and sticks in it Uh, it should never stink it should not be offensive it should smell like rich black healthy forest soil so on making your own compost Uh, For those of you who are at the recent TSP Spring Workshop, you will have heard that Nick thinks compost is bad. I don't think all compost is bad, but turning compost is bad. I do not like turning compost. Um, You need to look up how to build a Johnson Sioux bioreactor and do it. It takes a year to make the compost, but it's the best stuff around. No turning the pile. No need for technical knowledge. You don't have to know exactly all the browns and greens and the carbon to nitrogen ratios and all that mess. You don't have to know what temperatures to start turning it and how to turn it and all that malarkey. You don't have to be a master composter. And best of all, no turning the compost. The second awesome thing about it is that you don't have to turn the compost. Turning compost is bad. Making Berkeley-style compost, in my opinion, is bad. It's just not... I mean, it's better than nothing, but for the amount of effort that you put into it, it's just energy audit. It does not... It doesn't work. It, it, I hate it. I will never again make another compost pile where I have to turn it. Oh, the third awesome thing about this type of composting is you don't have to turn it. (laughs) So uh, look up Johnson Sioux Bioreactor. That's spelled J-O-H-N-S-O-N-S-U, bio, B-I-O-R-E-A-C-T-O-R, Johnson Sioux Bioreactor. You can go to C-S-U-C-H-I-C-O dot E-D-U forward slash regenerative agriculture forward slash bioreactor forward slash index dot shtml 
I'll send Jack the link, and maybe he can put it up in the show notes. But that is csuchico.edu, regenerative agriculture, forward slash bioreactor, forward slash index, shtml. If you're skeptical, look at the bottom of the page. To the right, there's a clickable link called Beam Citizen Science. There's a picture of a tree that is half green and half barely green. Uh, Look at the pictures and tell me. I beg you, tell me normal compost where you have to break your back turning every second day is better. Just look at the pictures and tell me that beam compost is not better. I hope this little tidbit and answer has helped some of you guys and gals out in TSP land to get a little bit more resilient and hopeful this year. I'm Nick Ferguson with Homegrown Liberty and Rare Plant Store. Do good things. Um, I have been making compost without turning it. Uh, I guess I, tur- I pile it up once. I'll accumulate, pile it up, and let it go, and it makes great pom- compost. However, when I looked at the Johnson Sioux Beam bioreactor, I decided, yeah, I'm going to build one of those. And there's the funny thing. I taught y'all how to build, like, 90% of this years and years ago. If you go into the MSB, there is a, a set of videos that you can use. They're not on YouTube or anything like that. They're MSB only. They're old as hell now. Of a three-bin three compost system made out of tough bins with holes and pipes and everything, they look suspiciously like this Johnson Research uh, bioreactor. However... I had like one pipe in the center and a little pipe coming in the bottom. And these have a a, a multiple pipe system. And once the compost kind of forms around the pipes, the pipes, I believe, are removed, I think. So it's it's like the next stage in the evolution of this idea that was born in my brain. And I'm sure I had nothing to do with it. And uh, this is an interesting thing. I think that ideas that time have come occur in multiple people in multiple places in the world at the same time. And because I didn't get into all studying it like these people did, it kind of plateaued where they they took this to a new level. I'm definitely going to build one of these, and I'm going to incorporate it with my duck house waste, my house waste stream, and the new duck feed system that is going to be using aquatic plants to feed my ducks. And that's going to be badass. With that, let's go ahead. we got one more before we have my segment today, and it's for old Doc Bones. I'm dealing with ear pressure. Doc, if you can hear me, what do we do about this? Hi, Joe Alden-MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the medical preparedness website doomandbloom.net, co-author of award-winning books like The Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, plus designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert council comes from Jen, who writes... Why do my ears feel like they need to pop more frequently? Last year, I started noticing a pressure in my ears while out hiking, a lot like when the elevation changes in an airplane. But having to pop my ears while hiking was never an issue before. It seems my ears need to be popped all the time now, even when I'm not changing an elevation and I'm simply hanging out at home. I'm 29, female, and not overweight. When I was younger, I would get yearly sinus infections and the occasional earache, but not so much anymore. What could be the problem? Is this something I can take care of myself at home, or do I need to see a specialist? Jen, there probably isn't anyone who's been on a plane 
dove into the deep part of a pool, or took a trip to the mountains who hasn't experienced popping in their ears. Ear popping is caused by pressure differences between the inside and outside of the eardrum. You feel that pressure, and it's usually described as a fullness, a stuffiness, or some kind of vague discomfort. The pressure in your middle ear is regulated by an area called the eustachian tube. Everyone has one on each side. They start in the middle ear, and they end in the area where your nasal cavity meets the upper part of your throat. Normally, the eustachian tubes open when you do things like swallow or yawn. This naturally equalizes the pressure in your middle ear, but if the eustachian tubes become blocked due to some medical issue, you may feel ear pressure that doesn't go away naturally. We use an instrument called an otoscope to evaluate the ear, canal, and eardrum. A normal eardrum is concave, shiny, and pearly gray. An infection usually presents as a dull eardrum that bulges outward and there might even be redness in the canal itself. Your problem could stem from nasal congestion related to allergies or sinus problems which you've had or even chronic upper respiratory infections. Of course, ear infections are at the top of the list, especially in younger patients. Earwax buildup is another problem that could cause problems with ear pressure. Also called cerumen, earwax is naturally made by the body to protect the inner parts of your ear. Normally, earwax moves down the ear canal to the outer ear where it eventually flakes off. But a buildup functions as a foreign object that can increase pressure and actually block the ear canal. There are several ways that people pop their ears to relieve discomfort. You can sniff, you can yawn, or swallow while holding your breath. You can perform something called a Valsalva maneuver. You would pinch your nostrils closed with your fingers while blowing air gently, but keep your cheeks pulled in. This generates pressure in the back of the nose, which may help open the eustachian tube. Other ways are sucking on some hard candy, chewing gum, some gargle with warm salt water. When it comes to medicines, you can use an oral decongestant, or you can use a nasal decongestant spray, or even an oral antihistamine. There are also steroid sprays that can be used nasally that can help. These are most important to use before flying, going to any high-altitude situation, or diving. Now, some over-the-counter options include Claritin, Zyrtec, Flonase, or Nasonex. These are especially helpful in cases caused by allergies. Some use nasal irrigation, using things like neti pots, although it's important to only use sterile fluids. In the worst cases, when it's clear on exam that, that there's a lot of fluid and pressure on the eardrum, a small incision called a myringotomy is performed to carefully drain inflammatory fluid that's in the middle ear. Sometimes a small hollow tube is actually placed into that opening to allow the fluid to continue draining. That would be for someone with a lot of pain, though. Although annoying, ear pressure issues aren't life-threatening, but increased pressure can persist and worsen, sometimes leading to a perforated eardrum due to some untreated infection. This can lead to hearing loss, so it's worth checking out, especially since you've had sinus issues in the past. Symptoms of a ruptured eardrum would include ear pain that comes and goes, drainage from the ear, which could be bloody, clear, or even contain pus. You would feel maybe a spinning sensation called vertigo or dizziness, or you might have ringing in your ears. That's called tinnitus. Jen, even a perforated eardrum will usually heal on its own. So whether you seek medical care is usually governed by how much it's affecting your quality of life. You should seek medical attention if you develop fever, severe ear pain, or drainage from the ear. You might consider seeing an ENT specialist, ear, nose, and throat. They have the most experience with this type of problem. From a hiking standpoint, it depends a little on elevation change, not only on the trail, 
but from wherever your home is. We live at sea level, but we'll travel to Tennessee and hike the Appalachian Trail. Often there are thousands of feet of rapid ascent that could happen in a few hours, which could have an effect on ear pressure. By the way, Amy and I recently hiked the entire length of the Appalachian Trail. Nah, I'm just kidding. But we have hiked the entire width. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, please consider supporting our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. Also, subscribe to doomandbloom.net to get all our articles, podcasts, and videos as they come out. You'll be glad you did. Now, I misspoke there. Um, I got a... One more segment for you. This is from Derek Von Pietro on possibly dodging a bullet on the purchase of a um, Ford F550 for towing as a side hustle with the uh, infamous Power Stroke 6.4 in it. And also he's going to kind of talk a little bit about the side hustle concept of towing as a side hustle as well. With that, hey, Derek, take it away. Happy Friday, TSP listeners. This is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a question from JR on power strokes. Did I dodge a bullet from a 6.4 power stroke? I was about to purchase a tow truck for a side hustle. I liked a lot of things about that truck, but when I got to the purchase agreement, I just had a bad feeling. Then I searched for problems with the 6.4 and was really worried because this is the 08 year with the most problems. Also, the guy said he has done an oil change, so I don't have the option of having the oil tested. I was also worried about the fuel pump wire problems. If the DPF and EGR... Uh, those are emission components. We're going to be a problem. I would just delete them, but the radiator problems and the cracked pistons and the fuel pump wiring are all things that are expensive and don't have easy or cheap fixes. The exhaust tubes that can crack can be replaced with aftermarket tubes, but the other big problems are just big expensive problems. The other major consideration was that as a 550, the truck needed commercial insurance. Even without having the business yet, it was going to cost me 255 bucks a month in insurance, just be able to drive it home, and much, much more when I started towing. I'd love to hear your thoughts and maybe help with other listeners because this truck is still for sale. As others like it, it was too good to be a true deal. After a little research, we found the truck has actually been in for sale since 2019 with the price slowly dropping. All right, JR, this has got a couple of aspects to it, not only the vehicle, but then it's a side hustle as well. I dig the fact that you're doing a side hustle, and I think towing is probably a really cool one to get into. Now, as far as... You know, your fixed overheads, like you said, truck payment, and then you've got the insurance that goes with it. You probably, since it's a commercial operation, can't get around that. I mean, probably towing somebody's vehicle and not having the insurance just if something bad happens, probably going to get you in some big trouble. And being a vehicle out on the road, you're into the commercial operations, and so now you've got to deal with state police and DOT. And, man, if you get busted doing something wrong with those guys, they are going to turn you every which way but loose. So my advice on doing a tow truck business, I'd say definitely keep it above board because this is really something with a large amount of liability. And I would say that since you're getting started and obviously you're not going to have as many tows right out of the gate, maybe try to look and use the truck for other things like pulling trailers, you know, campers, relocation. You can do RV delivery with it, which right now I'm sure is probably through the roof because that stuff is selling out like crazy. So Maybe think of other avenues to use the truck other than just simply hooking a car and going. So that way maybe you can get some more cash flow in each month and build your business so the overhead's not coming out of pocket. That's my take on the business aspect of it. Now let's dig into the power stroke. The 6.4 is probably one of the worst diesels that Ford has used in their platform. 
Now, right out of the gate, you have some red flags. The vehicle's been for sale for a couple of years now. The guy did a fresh oil change, which means that you're not going to be able to test the oil. So as kind of a pre-purchase inspection, you can actually take an oil sample and send it out for analysis. And so these labs will break the oil down and figure out what kind of deposits are in it. So, for example, if they see specific types of metal, they can tell you if maybe the bearings in the engine or the rings or the pistons or particular metal parts of the engine, and they can break it down typically to the individual piece if there's any kind of excessive wear. Now, if they're changing the oil out on you, so, oh, yeah, I just got it serviced and it's got fresh oil, you kind of flush all those out, and so now you got to wait for a few thousand miles to see those deposits back in the oil. So it's kind of like getting rid of all the evidence. And I don't like that, especially with something like this. You know, you wouldn't get an oil analysis on, like, a Toyota Camry, but when you're talking about a big diesel truck, it certainly would help, especially ones that are trouble, and it's going to give you a good indication of the integrity of the engine. So big red flag been for sale for a while and you can't get the oil analysis i don't like any of those now you mentioned the radiator problem so this particular model the crimps on the radiator tend to loosen up and then the radiator leaks yeah i mean like every vehicle has its problems and okay so you got to put a radiator in it not a big deal now the up pipes what you're describing are basically the plumbing that goes around the engine near the firewall from the engine to the turbo and from the turbo down those pipes are notorious for cracking, so guess what? Unless you live in a super clean area, probably going to be rusty, and the fasteners are probably going to be frozen. Now, the problem is, to get at that, you need to literally jack the cab off of the frames to gain access. So, this particular model, most major work on the engine requires cab removal. Hold on, let me say that one more time. Requires removing the cab off of the frame. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty intense. That's expensive. When you're talking about adding a few extra hours of labor and then dealing with body mounts and all these fasteners, which don't want to come undone, it's just a can of worms just trying to do anything on this particular engine. Now, other problems. You said the DPF and the EGR. So these are emissions components. One of them is exhaust gas recirculation. It's just a component which, which cycles exhaust gas back into the engine, which reduces engine temp and reduces oxides of nitrogen in the emissions. So these aren't necessarily a problem, but on the Ford, they use engine coolant to cool these, and they tend to plug up. They tend to create issues with combustion gases getting into the coolant and really spiking the temperature of the coolant, which then creates way bigger problems in the engine. Now, the DPF, diesel particulate filter, this is a part that's on the exhaust. This is a big catalytic converter. Both of these are big expenses. Now, you said you would just delete them. What this means is that you're buying block off plates or you're buying a pipe that deletes the exhaust piece and you would then accompany it with a special tune on the engine control computer and so basically you're bypassing all of that stuff so it doesn't create any check engine lights and it allows the engine to just operate without those emissions components it's great for the engine it'll actually make a lot of these heavily emission laden engines last the two to three hundred thousand miles they're designed to and get better fuel economy and all that stuff downside it is polluting but it's also illegal. You can't do that, especially since you're running a commercial operation now. You're out on the road. you got to deal with DOT. I would highly suggest not deleting the emissions components. Now, if this was a personal vehicle, I wouldn't blame anybody for deleting that stuff off of their truck. Some of the other 6.4 problems, they do have some head gasket issues, not as bad as the previous engine. And it also has notorious pistons for cracking. But all of this stuff is going to be expensive, and it's going to require taking the cab off. And you might as well just assume, unless they have some receipts from a reputable shop and you can actually see witness marks that the engine's been worked on, 
I would just assume it hasn't been done and factor that in to your offer. So for example, to quote unquote bulletproof an engine, which that's not my terminology. That's kind of like the industry standard where you throw a bunch of money at these, these diesels that have problems and there's a bunch of kits and parts that you're going to throw in it. So for example, like instead of using a engine a head bolt to tighten the head to the engine block, they would go to a stud kit. So you use a threaded rod that comes out of the engine block with a nut on it, which is a little bit stronger setup. And it's different from stock, but you throw some money at it and then you can potentially eliminate head gasket problems and things like that. So that's kind of like what bulletproofing an engine is. We're talking thousands of dollars to start. So I would plan three to $5,000 maybe to do some serious work to any of these diesels. So if you bought that and this guy's got no paper trail, just assume out of pocket you're going to spend three to five to fix whatever problems are there or are going to pop up, you know, obviously, as soon as you take it home. I would just budget that in without question. And it should reflect your offer price. So don't pay top dollar for it unless you got all the receipts and all the paper trail to back up the guy's stories and claims. The problem with buying these like 450 and 550 class vehicles is that it's still based on like the one ton truck body and service and all that stuff is very difficult. What I would probably recommend, and I would certainly not classify myself as being like a medium duty truck expert by any means, but I would probably be looking at like a bigger international when I say bigger, I mean like one step above, maybe kind of in that weight class of medium duty and something with a big inline six and that has a nose that pulls up because you're going to be able to service the thing. You don't have to like lift the cab off of the frame or snake your body in there to work on it. You pull the nose off, you got access to everything, just like a real truck, an over the road truck has. And they're built that way because they're designed to go forever and be worked on. You probably stay away from the stuff that's based on the one ton pickup body. That's my recommendation. Even if you had to buy one that was slightly older or maybe slightly more money, I think long run, when you start to have to take this thing out of service for maintenance, it's going to be faster and it's going to be cheaper compared to some of those trucks you've been looking at. All right, JR. Hope this steers you in the right direction, man. Good luck with your side gig. Hope it works out for you. As always, thanks, guys, for the questions. Take care. All right, guys and gals. Time for my segment today, and I'm going to go back to... Uh, our quote of the day, which is by Robert Scoble, he's a blogger. You know that that's interesting because like bloggers are now quoted by uh, major websites, and it wasn't that long ago that if you would have said blogger, people wouldn't have known what he's talking about. And I know blogs been around for over twenty years now, but uh, again, it ain't that long ago. It isn't that long ago that the idea that someone blogging even when blogging had first started, would actually be an influencer. It's not. It's pretty. It's it's a pretty new concept, and blogging has largely died. If you think about it, like yeah, the most advanced plat or the, I wouldn't say the most advanced platform. The the most used platform for individual websites for communicating ideas in a temporal format, which we think of as a blog, is WordPress. I use it, but would you call Jack Spearco a blogger? I think I was at one time. I wrote some blog posts that were pretty forward-looking way, way, way long time ago. And those blogs are old and gone and dead and were never maintained. But thanks to the Wayback Machine, you can even see me calling out Donald Trump for not knowing how to run a blog. Uh, that's a true story. And you can see their uh, staff reach out to me, and you can see me convert the, Donald Trump into a client and advising them how to run their blog by, by doing a blog post that said their blog sucked but blogs just aren't that influential anymore. Things have changed. What are people doing now? 
People are doing vlogs, though really they're more YouTubers or Odysseers or bit shooters or whatever. Um, we don't really think of blogs as a place where people put down their thoughts anymore. It's still done, but it's not dominant. And if they're in, in the places where they're having the majority of influence is not on their blogs. If they're using blogs, it's social media. It's microblogging. Like, that's what Twitter is. Twitter's basically a microblog site. Like, this, this entire thing kind of, I watched it, and I was part of it. It became one of the most influential platforms there was. Just a straight blog. Blogs that took off, that had thousands and thousands of readers, could get things initiated and, and could do things that mainstream media couldn't. And then blogs evolved. And now most of the, you would call them big blogs, are more like, they're really websites. They're news sites or things like that. They have multiple different people blogging, but they're done more in the form of something you would think of as journalism than, hey, this is what I think. Because, well, you got everything from TikTok to Instagram to MeWe to Facebook to Twitter. Like all these things kind of disrupted this new space of influence. And the influencers spread out so that even the ones that are still doing a traditional blog, their main influence is not expressed through their blog. Or they've taken their blog to a different format. You look at the TSP blog, no one really calls the Survival Podcast a blog. It's more it's a it's a blog platform used to syndicate a podcast. So even the people that are still using the tech like me, we're using it differently. That's a disruption. And it's interesting we have a blogger being quoted here in Robert Scoble about change, which is disruption. Change is inevitable, and the disruption it causes often brings both inconvenience and opportunity. So I had a really successful blog. It was really successful at the time. And it was all about technology and marketing and future trends. It was called Comtech News. And I was there was a service, I don't even remember what the hell it was called right now, Everything on it was green, and it ranked blogs based on popularity. And in the technology sector, I was like a top 25 blog at the time that I was doing that blog. And I talked about everything from digital music to Wi-Fi, expanding technologies. I was talking about um, uh, what, what, uh, net neutrality. Before anybody knew what the hell net neutrality was and what was going to come out of it and how it was all this, this grassroots movement was fake astroturfing, like... But what if I stayed with that? What if I, because I started, when I started TSP, Comtech News was still a thing. Back in 2008, I was still occasionally putting articles out on Comtech News. What if I, what if I said, you know, I'm not going to embrace podcasting. I'm going to stick with what I know. I'm going to stick with blogging. Well, I don't know how successful that blog would be today, but that, that blog, even if it would have made me money, would have never changed lives the way TSP does. Never. There's no way. I know. I wrote it. I promise you. I might have got some interviews. I might be on TV now, occasionally. Hey, forward-thinking tech, you know, tech blogger Jack Spearco is on today to tell us what he thinks is going to happen with whatever. Maybe I would have embraced blockchain technology faster if I stayed there because I would have been focused 100% on tech. Maybe I would have rejected out of hand. I don't know. But when, when podcasting clearly became a way for people to take in information 
on the go. And I realized from all the, like we had a show this week where I talked about kind of my history and financial, you know, understanding and financial mindset and being entrepreneurial. And I talked about how I drove around in my car and I educated myself with books on tape. And it taught me something. And I, I'm sure other people have said this. I've never, I don't know who else has said this though. And I've said this for years. The most powerful form of marketing is audio. There is, when it, when it comes to deep marketing, informational marketing, not, you know, a sign that shows you a logo that you become brand associated with. When I'm talking about marketing deep ideas that require explanation, you really only have three mediums to play in there. You have text, you have audio, and you have video with audio accompaniment. That's really it. If you're going to have a deep, long message, we don't have telepathy yet. I guess you can embed it something like a video game, but then it's video. You see what I'm saying? So you have to choose. If you're going to spend more than... 30 seconds to get a message across, and I still think you're limited to those basic mediums. Maybe you can use imagery, still images a little bit more that way. But if you're going to communicate, you're going to spend 5, 10, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour communicating ideas. You're limited to video, which includes audio. You're limited to text, which people have to read, book format type things. Or you have audio. And when I looked at that and I thought about that, I was like, okay, so I can speak And I can get this done quickly. I don't have to sit around and do a bunch of editing. If I say something wrong, I'll just explain myself. And that means that all my marketing of my ideas and my hope to build community and to spread preparedness and all these stuff will be in audio format. So if I wrote a blog about preparedness, and there were lots of them at the time, and there just doesn't seem to be that many of them left, then you would have to sit down and read what I had to say. Which means you're not going to do it while you're at the gym lifting weights. Which means you're not going to do it while you're outside in your garden planting plants. Which means you're not going to do it while you're in your wood shop with doing some lathe turning work. It means you're not going to do it where most of you do it, in your car driving from place to place. Because if you try to read when you're doing any of those things, you get hurt or hurt something else. You can't do it right. It means you're not going to sit at your work, at your place of work, in your office, doing your mindless job, that you could do with your, you know, one hand tied behind your back and be listening to me because you have, you would have to read it or watch it. And that kind of attracts the boss man, right? Lumberg comes around. Hey, Peter, what are you doing? Right? Like that causes a problem. But if you had, you know, Bluetooth earpiece in and you were sitting there doing your work like you're supposed to, you could listen to me. This is why, by, why audio is the most powerful, powerful form of marketing. So what was coming was a disruption to the space. And I wish I could tell you that I thought about it that articulately. This space is being disrupted. Therefore, I need the disruptive technology to be the way I carry my message. No, all I said to myself was, podcasting's hot. Audio is the most powerful form of marketing. You want to shift your life into a place where this is what you do by helping and educating people? Do audio. If you can do audio, make sure you get on iTunes, because at the time, you didn't get on iTunes, you didn't go nowhere. So I got lucky in embracing that disruptive technology. But it was from awareness. And this is where we are now. There are so many technologies that are about to completely up-ass-end the apple cart. Education is going to change in the next few years to where you will not recognize it. And everything I've been saying is going to happen is going to happen. So how do you harness that? 
Do you become an educator? If you are a teacher, do you switch from being a teacher to an educator? I'm sorry. I know this pisses teachers off. Everybody wants to say they're heroes without capes or whatever. The system they're in is broken. If you are a teacher in the state school system, you are not an educator. You are a trainer. You are a trainer. You are training children to answer questions a certain way. I'm sure many of you get teaching in. You get education in because you love it so much and it's in your heart so much. You do what you can. But I almost can bet that, that almost any teacher who's actually good at what they do, because some teachers suck, just like some lawyers suck, just like some firemen suck, right? Just like some podcasters suck. Like every profession has people that suck. And when you're in a bureaucracy, if you can get in the door, you can suck and stay for almost ever. So we have teachers that have been teaching for 20 years that always suck, but you can't get rid of them. And the first person that'll admit that as soon as they get out of the triggered emotion is a teacher who doesn't suck, right? So if you're a good teacher, you're going to get that in there. But if you get any of them good teachers and say, would you teach your class exactly the way you do now, exactly the things that you do now, if the school district just gave you a basic thing and said, here's things you need to make sure you work in, because this is like our minimum standards for second grade or fifth grade or eighth grade or whatever. But however you do it, however you want to do it, whatever you want to do, just do it. And whatever else you want to include, just go ahead and do that too. Would you keep doing what you're doing? And almost every teacher that's worth a damn would say, no. Okay, then you're not the educator that you want to be. Do you shift to become an educator? Did you go into teaching because it was a good job that paid well that you knew you could keep? Well, some of you will. A lot of you won't. Or did you go into teaching because you really love teaching? And do you sit there every day and say to yourself, Self, I'm not teaching anymore. Do, do, do you hear my words and get triggered but then say, Oh, wait a minute, he's right? He's right? And you think, I hate this? Do you, do you embrace this change? Do you realize that like, if you are a top teacher, not in what you're doing now if you're restricted from doing it, but if you have the the talent to be a top teacher, that you can literally be a teacher to thousands instead of dozens a year, and you can be highly compensated for it, do you not think what I do is teaching? Of course it is. This show is an educational show more than anything else, an educational show. Just because we make it entertaining and occasionally mix some current events in, and just because we educate about things that people generally don't learn in school, doesn't mean we're not educational. Do you embrace this shift? There, there is a, a crash coming in commercial real estate. An absolute crash coming in commercial real estate. I'm going to say it one more time. There's an absolute crash coming in commercial real estate. Everybody knows it. And even the people that are the experts and always like, no, 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 no. They're all admitting it now. They all know it's coming. And they all know it's actually here, that it's been staved off for a time by all this fake money coming in and shit. But they know that companies who have gone to remote work are abandoning their office space and they're like, we don't need it anymore. Well, how much can you lose of the commercial real estate tenant sector or ownership sector before you have a crash? And the answer is about 10%. 10% lost in the real estate market where it's like it's gone, it's not coming back, crashes the sector. That's all it takes. So you, 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 I don't think people understand how much real estate that is, how many buildings that is, how many square feet that is. It's going to be dirt freaking cheap. 
How do you turn that into an opportunity? It's 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 going to be an inconvenience. It's going to shit can part of the economy. It's going to really knock the piss out of cities and states who have highly relied upon these large individual companies occupying the space. We're going to see a place where the commercial space that is used is going to be primarily manufacturing space, but even those companies, the people that do customer service and all that stuff, they're going to work from home. What's the opportunity there? I think there's a lot of opportunities there. There may be ways to make even better technology for those people who are working from home. There may be ways to leverage people who are now working from home that are only really going to need to work 20 hours a week. And how could you provide something they could do that would benefit you? I don't know. I don't have an answer. I'm just saying, like, this is how we have to start looking at these shifts. There's going to be a lot of formerly incredibly expensive square footage under roof that's going to get really, really cheap. But probably in some areas, they're going to go downhill from a demographic standpoint, you know, as far as crime goes. But is there an opportunity with that square footage? And then if you can find the abandoned places that don't have that problem with crime and deterioration of neighborhoods, etc., what can you do with that? Is that an indoor farming opportunity? I don't know. I don't know what it is. Since so much digital things are going to happen, do some of these places that used to house employees start housing data centers? I don't know. Who's going to build those data centers if they're going to exist? I don't know, but that's something to look at. You have to look at every momentous shift that's about to occur and ask yourself, is there a way that I can position myself to benefit from this? And here's the interesting thing. If you, if you hit a home run with one, that's all you need. You don't need them all. I think you need to be aware of the major ones. We've talked a lot about them. But education's one. Commercial real estate's one. Automation is another one, which is going to only exasperate the commercial real estate thing. You don't need as much administration in a company that has less employees. A lot of your administration is compliance and shit like that, but a lot of your administration is so you get into bigger and bigger companies. It's about people. If you're enabled, if you're using enabled technology to do manufacturing and or coding or technical development or any of that stuff, and you reduce your employee headcount to 20% of just the, the worker bees, you're going to have a corresponding massive drop in admin, and you're going to need less commercial space. That's only going to exasperate that. It just keeps going. The education market, I think, is going to be enormous. Additionally, if you're a parent with children, I, I, I really think this is the time to get your kids into alternative education to the state system because if you don't, my grandson's 10. Let's say you have a 10-year-old in what's considered a good school, right, in, in some place where you're paying exorbitant property taxes and you leave your kid in that school and they're programmed And, and my grandson's educated in a motivational, entrepreneurial mindset. And instead of the, the typical send them around the school every day, different teachers for 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, they're not only being influenced by the best teachers that Excellus University or Excellus, Excellus Academy can find, the very best. He gets the very best teaching delivered right to his tablet here in our house. He gets my wife and me 
guiding him. He gets me guiding him. Your kid gets a state employee guiding them. He gets me guiding him. Do you want your kid having to compete with kids like my grandson 10, 15 years from now? Do you really? I see the disruption. I'm using the disruption to my advantage. And if somebody comes out with a better program for my grandson than Excellus, I can switch to it that fast. Can you? Can you? When we get into a subject and he's struggling with it, I can sit down and give him 20 different ways to get past it. Or if he takes real interest in something, I can take a day off and I can take him to a museum to explore it. If he gets really interested into animals like he's into big cats, I can take him to the big cat rescue like we did out in Wiley, Texas, and let him go around and see these animals in real life and understand them and see if that's a passion he wants. Well, can you do that? Can your school do that? Because I'm harnessing the disruption. That's why. It's not I'm better. It's the disruptions here. What can you do with it? You need to look at society as a whole right now and realize how much disruption is coming. And you need to stop judging these disruptions based on whether you like them or you like their implications or you think you can vote them away because you can't. You can't stop these any more than you could stop a grist mill if you were down in the mill trying to stop it while 10 Clydesdales were turning it above your head. All you're going to get doing that is rubbed out into a little red streak. I said something about MeWe and it really triggered some people. But it's true. You know, I said, isn't it interesting that of all people, Karl Marx, and this is not elevating the guy, this is just a fact. Karl Marx postulated that the way communism would become a reality was that technology would develop to the point where human labor was no longer necessary and machinery and technology would do most of the work, freeing up people to live the life they wanted to live and they could simply be paid out of the proceeds of that operation. Tell me that's not where we're going. I don't like it. I think it's horrible. Karl Marx is an awful, horrible person. Communism killed hundreds of millions of people. I don't disagree. I didn't, I didn't bring up any of that, did I? This is critical thinking skills, folks. Get on board the ship. That was the idea. Communism, as we think of it today, was supposed to get us there. That was Marx's theory. That We needed to do all the horrible things communism does and take everything over so we could get to this place. You can know the destination and be totally wrong about the directions. right? You can be sitting in Dallas and you can know that you want to go to Philadelphia and your map to get there can be at like, like a retarded chimpanzee smoking dope could have done a better job of laying out the path than you did, but it doesn't mean you're wrong about where you are and where you're going. You're wrong about the path. And that maybe that's where he wanted to be, but maybe, maybe, as bad as this man was, maybe he actually did see that this was the eventual reality. If you think about the time frame that this guy was around and the things that were going on and moving into like the Industrial Revolution, etc., didn't it look like everybody's jobs were going to go away? Is that where we are today? where it looks like everybody's jobs are going to go away, or are we at a place where tons of jobs are going to go away? I think we're actually at a place this time where tons of jobs are going to go away. And think about this reality. If you go back prior to World War II, half the people in the workplace now mostly weren't there. Women in the workplace was rare. 
I don't care how you emotionally feel about that. I don't care if you think it's wrong or right. I don't think, care if you think that's trying to keep women oppressed or that, that women's liberation came from that or that we actually oppressed women by making them work. I don't care how you feel about that. This is not about your emotions. This is about the fundamental reality that the workplace in body count was male-dominated prior to World War II. And that if we just went back to a place where it doesn't even have to be male, one parent can support a family with a job, half the, the half the employed society no longer has a job. It's half the people roughly losing their job. I think it's at least that. That's what technology is going to do. Why do I need to employ a person who picks their nose, doesn't show up for work on time, always has a problem to pull parts off a shelf, stick them in a box, and mail them to somebody with an Amazon smile on it if I have a robot that will do that 24-7, 365, and for every 100 robots I need one technician to take care of them? Why do I need all those nose pickers? I know many of those people are good people, but you know what? If you ever employed people, you'd understand what I'm saying. Your employment force gets to a certain size, and over half the people you have, you have them because you have no choice. You don't really want them. You would replace them tomorrow if you could get people like the other half of your workforce. But you can't because businesses have to compete for talent. What happens as we get into a world where you can pick, you can choose, and you can have employees that are the best, the top half? Well, you stop hiring the other half. The disruption coming is epic. Everybody wants to make a big deal, you know, Alternative energy doesn't work. Look what happened to Texas. Blah, 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 blah. You know what? You're the same people that the first time a rocket exploded would have ended the space program. You have no idea what the hell you're talking about. None. We are moving to a place where the cheapest electricity we're going to be able to produce outside of hydroelectric is solar. In fact, in many ways, we're already there. We don't have a generation problem. We have a storage and a capacity and a distribution problem. All of those are mechanical uh, problems, and all of those can be solved. All of them. All of them. They're going to be. You cannot like it. You can say you don't believe it. It doesn't matter. It's going to happen. The disruption coming to energy is massive. The disruption coming to economics and finance through blockchain is massive. You can hold your breath and still insist it's tulip mania in 2021 where the thing that you said was going to die has been forecasted to die over 400 times and is doing better than it ever has, or you can accept that. You can look at energy and finance and claim, you know, to, to hold your breath until you turn purple and pass out, that those things are not going to radically shift due to blockchain. But then I tell you this week about a coal mining company that's publicly traded, that's investing in mining equipment, not to mine coal, but to mine Bitcoin. You can ignore the reality, you can get run over, or you can accept what's happening. And the people that accept what's happening fast, first, that take the position to harness that, are the ones that prosper. They're the ones that find opportunity versus the ones that find inconvenience or even total destruction. If you go back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, there's sectors like the steel industry 
that collapsed in America, and many of the people that lost their jobs in that were functionally unemployed until they hit actual retirement age. They never, ever got a job that was anything approaching what they had before ever again. Ever. Ever. It didn't happen. I know. With them in my family. I'm from Pennsylvania, God's sakes. Right? And even things like the coal industry took it on the chin through that time period. And many miners never got a job again. So my grandfather went from being a coal miner to a carpenter. He was able to adapt to change. Most people aren't. And honest to God, had he not been injured as much as he had been in the mines and not had been hit with black lung and didn't end up on money for that, his career as a carpenter would have never kept them relatively comfortable. He was actually lucky that he had black lung. How screwed up is that? That's the power of shifts. That's what's coming, ladies and gentlemen. And it's coming everywhere all at once. I don't think that the period between 2020 and 2030 will be rivaled in history for flux and change. I don't think there'll be ever a time in history, like if you look at the period between like 1840 and 1900, the change, you know, I'd say really 1840 and 1910, the change that happened there, I mean, oh my God. We think we had so much change because we went on the internet. All we did was take everything we already had and put it online. Now you're seeing what happens when that goes on for a couple decades. And we start evolving the technology. And it starts to take over everything. You're going to have people that never have a job. By 2030, you'll have people that are employed in the virtual world. I don't mean they have a job they do virtually from home. I mean they're going to have a job inside a virtual world. A job inside what we today we call a video game. But it really be, be a virtual world. They might even be paid in an asset, a digital asset of that virtual world, and be able to buy things in the physical world due to their activity in the virtual world. We're already there in some ways. They made a movie about it. They weren't wrong when they made that movie. I don't remember what it's called now. It's all, people think everything in this big shift is already here, and they're right, but it hasn't expressed itself yet. And I'll just say it again, Robert Scoble, change is inevitable, and the disruption it causes often brings both inconvenience and opportunity. And I'll add to it, the choice between inconvenience and opportunity, do you recognize it and fight it? That's almost worse than not recognizing it at all. Recognizing it and harnessing it is the only way to turn what can be an incredible disruption to your life into an opportunity. Maybe the biggest opportunity you'll ever have. With that, let's wrap things up. Item of the day today is made by a company called Dr. Slick. Dr. Slick. They're, they are known as scissor clamps. This is for you fishermen. I'm sure there's some other professions and hobbies that you could find a use for these. But these, they look like, well, they're a, nah, he's got a black pair of hemostats there. No, no, no. I've used hemostats for fishing and tying flies and all that other stuff for a long time. These are, you know, like it would be like saying that, uh, a, like a super, like an F three fifty Super Duty is the same as like a you know compact Isuzu pickup truck from nineteen ninety five. 
I mean, really. Like, that's how much beefed up they are over a set of hemostats. They also are more of a multi-tool. Uh, they have a lot of functions in them. They have a serrated scissor that does really great for trimming line, including braided line, even though the review people say it doesn't braid line. You've seen a video where I cut it. They have a hook eye cleaning spike, so that's when you get you know jig heads that have paint over them and stuff like that. They have a flat tip screwdriver built into it, which I've already used. I've already used just when you had like that, that little screw on your bail, sort of loosen up on your spinning reel. It's nice that it's there, you know. Um, they're just a great tool. They're very affordable, and they are definitely worth investing in. And um, I also recommend if you get a set of these, you know, unlike hemostats, you can buy like four pair for seven bucks. You know, they're under 20 bucks, but th th they're an investment. That's a real tool, so they have a real tool investment price. Um, there's a company called Boomerang Tool Company. They make a little zinger, which is basically a little thing clips on your belt or wherever, and you hook something to it, and you can pull it out, and it just retract. It's got a retractable on it. There's a lot of zingers out there. Most of them are scrap. The one I have linked to in the article today is the best one you will find, period. And if you're buying something as good as Dr. Slick scissor clamps, you want to take a look at it. Remember, no matter what you buy, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping where? tspaz.com. Let's wrap things up today with our song of the day as we continue with the MSB. Not the member support brigade, folks, which you can join, but the Michael Stanley Band. Um... This song, I think, is toward the end of his career. He did pass away just, I think, two years ago or something like that. This song's from, like, 2011, I think, and it's called Winter. And it sounds like the kind of song you release uh, near the end of your career, near the end of your life. Um, the winter in this song is the winter that I'm going to say we hopefully all go through. You can kind of break a human life into four seasons. You've got, you know, you're born in spring. Growth is rapid and fast, and everything's new and beautiful. You mature into summer, kind of the best days of your life, the best years of a human life, where you get your stride. You know, when you, you, you find the thing that you're meant to do, and you, you build a career, or you build a life, you have some kids. You're still young and strong. And all of a sudden, you know, just when you think summer will never end, and you're in August, you start to eye September. A little bit of gray forms in the hair. Joints hurt a little bit different than they used to. Kids start growing up, maybe having kids of their own. You become a papa or a grandma. And then you realize you're in this state where, like, I'm older, but I'm wiser, and I've got some money, and I've done my things well, and, man, i got a great life. And sooner or later, you realize, I only went through two seasons, two and a half seasons. There's not a lot left. The next thing you know, you're staring at winter. Winter always comes. It comes every year, and it comes in every life if we live long enough. And that's why I say hopefully we all experience winter in our lives, because some of us go way too young and we never get there. I've had good friends die in the peak of their summer. It's sad. So when I look at getting old and I look at facing that winter, I don't, I don't necessarily want to, to jump into winter right away. But I realize experiencing that winter is something not everybody gets to do. Some people die of sickness or illness or accident or war or conflict in some way. There's all kinds of ways people get cheated out of experiencing winter for themselves. 
But as I get closer to winter and I think more about my own mortality, I think about the fact that I'm going to reach points where some of the things that are so easy for me to do now I won't be able to do, or some of the things like trips I want to take or some places I want to go, things I want to do, I may not be able to always do the way I can right now, or even at all. It makes me start to realize I'm not in the middle of fall yet, but it is September. The wind is shifting. The wind is blowing a little cooler. And you know what I'm going to say. That happens to us all, so make the most of your dash. With that, it's been Jack Spierka with another episode on the Survival Podcast. I'm a man of good intentions, but that in a dime won't get you anything. Hardly worth your time. And I've had my share of lovers that train right off the tracks I broke some hearts along the way and they broke it right back Seems like subtlety and nuance might just as well be dead Traded for a moment In the spotlight overhead And those windmills I've been chasing Will they vanish all too soon And leave a leather jacket lunatic Powering at the moon At the moon Still I wish that this sunset was slower Wish I knew how to write some wrongs I'm wondering if today It ain't too late to play Cause it feels like winter's coming on It feels like winter's coming on Coming on It ain't
Like a winter's coming on. 